John chapter 11, we'll be picking up in verse 17 today. I'm going to pray that the Lord would bless our, our study today and that He would minister to our hearts. So if you would, uh, join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask your blessing. We have gathered here, it's the Lord's day, it's your day, Jesus. We come together as the body of Christ, the family of God, to honor the Son, to honor the Father and the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would be well pleased that in our gathering, our fellowship, our praise and worship, our study of your word, that it would be uh, very pleasing in your sight, a sweet-smelling aroma rising to the heavens. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a very wonderful way through the word, through the God-breathed Holy Scriptures, and that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our eyes, and that we would behold wonderful things from your word, and that you would meet us where we are. We all need to hear from you. We all need to learn of you. We all need to be reminded afresh of certain things that perhaps have, uh, for one reason or another, lost their, uh, just lost the, the, the special value perhaps we once placed on these things. I just pray that you would do a new work in all of us here today. We have many different needs here, but one thing's for sure, we need you more than any other thing in this world, in this life. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we meet with you in a very special way through your word, and so I pray that you would please bless the, the teaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hallelujah. Well, last week we began our study of John chapter 11, and we examined verses 1 through 17, and the title of uh, that message was Setting the Stage for the Glory of God. Because Jesus is about to do his, the final miracle that's recorded in the Gospel of John, at least, before he is to uh, go to the cross. He's at the end of his ministry now, and uh, the, the cross is, is upon us. And so it's been about three years of Jesus going about healing, preaching, doing marvelous, miraculous works in the Father's name. But this particular work, this particular miracle would stand out above the rest because, as I said last week, Jesus heals a man or raises a man who had died back to life after having been in the grave for four days. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. But this is truly to the glory of God here. Jesus says that over and over, that he does these things for the honor and the glory of the Father, and that the Father does these things through the Son for the honor and glory of the Son. And this is ultimately for us, for our faith, for our belief, and our trust in who Jesus is. And there were really four things I said that were, that were uh, factors in the passage that we looked at last week, and really continue on throughout the remainder of this story, and that is Jesus' love for his friends. Remember that? Jesus was deeply motivated by love, because we are his friends. They were his friends. Jesus says, I have called you friends. And so we should press into Jesus as one who is our dear and closest friend. Jesus does all things for the passion and the glory of God. Jesus does all things in submission to God's timing. Remember that? Talked about that. Very relevant. And that remains relevant in our story today. And Jesus is committed to strengthening faith. And that's really, I think, what we're going to see the most today in our text, is Jesus' commitment to strengthen faith. Now, he was doing that in his disciples last week. Remember, they didn't want to go to Bethany. They didn't want to go to where Lazarus was at because, well, that was a very hostile place against Jesus. They had just been in that area, and the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Remember that? Well, they remembered that, and they thought, why in the world will we go back there? But Jesus was going to do something incredible, something amazing, something that was going to stretch their faith in ways they could have never imagined, and that was very much a part of what Jesus was doing and is doing. And I would say in a lot of ways, that's very much a part of what we're going to see today in our story. 
Now, remember, I, I and Pastor Dan have told you so many times that the purpose of the gospel of John is ultimately so that people would believe Jesus. They would read, they would, they would see, they would hear, they would understand these amazing works that the Son of God has done in the name of the Father, and they would say, that is the Son of God, I trust, I believe. And in so doing, they would have eternal life. So John tells us that's the goal of the book. Amen? That's the goal of the book in John chapter 20. I would say that's the goal of every passage that we read because it's the goal of the book. And so that's the goal today. But Jesus didn't just stop when people came to trust in Him. Jesus was very concerned about us growing in faith because when we come to Him, we are brand new, baby, fledgling believers, and our week is small. Our, excuse me, our faith is small. It's weak. And so... Jesus is committed to strengthening our faith, growing our faith. So my question is, if that's the purpose of the book, we've been studying this book week after week, and Jesus is committed to that, is it happening in our lives? Have we been growing in faith? Has our faith been strengthened in Jesus? It's not just reading these stories that does it, believe me. The Lord has His ways. The Lord grows our faith. He's very committed to it, and He does it in all kinds of ways, but one of His main ways of doing it is through difficulty, through adversity, through hardship. Has anybody experienced any of that lately? Okay, amen. That, that's God's love for you. God loves you, and God will bring those kinds of things into our lives so that we will grow in our understanding of His faithfulness, of His dependability, of His commitment to us, and his desire to make us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That is an expression of God's love. Now, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. That's some deep stuff. And that's the kind of thing that we're going to be considering today as we look at faith. You know, real-life faith. I've titled this message, Real-Life Faith. It's messy, but it's glorious. It's messy, but it's glorious to God. If we're honest, our faith is not, you know, it's, it's not such a neatly packaged and perfect thing as we would like it to be. We, we can be all over the place. We can falter. We can struggle. We can question God. We can doubt. We can go through all of these things. God's not mad. God's not, you know, upset with us about it. God knows. God knows we're weak. God knew everything about us before we were ever even born. But I think that the struggle is all part of it. It's all part of the process, and I think God's even glorified in that. And we're going to kind of look at that a little bit today. And we're going to see this with Mary and Martha. We love Mary and Martha. If you've been reading your Bible for any length of time, you know the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus was in their house, and Martha was busy doing many things. Hospitality was her thing for sure, and Mary was in the house sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to His words. And so uh, we've probably all heard that story many, many times, and these are the, the people that we're going to be looking at today, that we're going to be focusing on. These were close friends of Jesus. And we saw last week that they sent a message to Jesus and said, you know, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. He's sick. Our brother, your friend, the one who you love, he's sick. And, uh, you know... Um, they had an earnest hope and expectation that Jesus would come right away, right? That Jesus would come right away and heal their brothers. That was their hope. That was what they expected. Yet, we saw that Jesus waited. Jesus didn't go right away. Jesus didn't come as they would have hoped and expected. And needless to say, their hopes and their expectations were dashed to pieces when Lazarus died and Jesus had not come. I mean, that, wouldn't, our, wouldn't that be the case for us? I mean, have we not had experiences where things didn't go the way that we had hoped they would and our hope, our expectation was dashed to pieces? You know that song, uh, there's a song that we have, we've, we have uh, sung here before, and I like the song, uh, and part of the song is, You're Never Gonna Let Me Down. You're Never Gonna Let, Never Gonna Let Me Down. You, maybe you've heard it. Maybe you haven't. And I like it, and I love to sing it, but the reality is, is that, in a sense, yeah, He's not going to let us down because He is 
always going to do the right thing, the best thing, the perfect thing. He's always going to be faithful to himself, and his will is, is the best thing. But can we just be honest? The things that we hope and expect for don't always happen. And sometimes our expectations and our hopes do get dashed on the rocks into pieces. And that's where faith has to kick in. That's where real-life faith has to arise, has to emerge. And that's really what we, what we see here today. When Jesus does arrive, seemingly too late for their brother had already died, we see a real transparency, a real vulnerability with these sisters. I love it. They're not just, it's not all plastic. You know, they really say what they feel and what they think. And uh, I love that because that's what God wants from us. Amen. He wants us to be real with Him. You ever feel like you can't be real with people? You can't be honest about how you feel? Well, you can with God. You know why? Because God already knows anyway. And so to somehow think that you can't be real with God, that's uh, it's, it's crazy thinking. And so they were real with Jesus, and I, and I love that. And these were godly women who were full of faith, and yet under crushing grief, they struggled, as they should have, as we would expect from any human being. We struggle, don't we? This is something that we can all relate to. It's easy to have faith when everything's going good, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Are you all with me? It's easy to have faith when everything is good. You know, being a a fair-weather Christian. And so, I know for some people, they don't have any faith until things get bad. They're not thinking anything about Jesus or God until things get bad. Then they are crying out, right? You've got that for sure. But I think a lot of people, man, as long as things are going as they ought, they are praising the Lord. God is good. They're full of faith. And then as soon as things don't go the way they had expected or hoped or it goes devastatingly bad or wrong, now all of a sudden they, they doubt deeply. They begin to question they begin to accuse and challenge the goodness, the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God. And we've all been there. Maybe some of us are even there right now. Maybe there are some people watching on, online right now, and that's right where you're at. Well, I hope that we'll be deeply encouraged today. I trust that we will as we look at this very relevant, re, uh, very applicable text before us. And so with that, let's go ahead and get into it. I don't have a super... Uh, fancy outline today, and uh, this was a very difficult passage to outline, but I have two, two basic points, and so our text will be broken up into two points, and really it's just the two sisters. We're going to look at Martha, how Martha responds to Jesus, and then we're going to look at how Mary responds to Jesus towards the, the end of the text, and I would call this real-life faith, real-life faith, and what we see with Martha especially is a very honest and transparent faith. They are words of faith. They are words of seeming doubt and accusation, but at the same time, you see words of faith. And she really interacts with Jesus verbally here. And uh, there are a lot of observations that we can draw out and be encouraged by. And uh, with Martha or Mary, it's going to be more of a posture of faith more of her posture, and we'll talk about that as we get there. So with that, let's go ahead and get into our text. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. That is Lazarus. He had already been buried for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And so Jesus, I think, was about 20 miles away, and he made his way to Bethany. Bethany was only two miles away from Jerusalem, very close to Jerusalem. And so um, a lot of the, the Jews came from Jerusalem over to Bethany to help mourn the loss of Lazarus alongside Mary and Martha. And that was, a, that was something that they really did big time. Mourning, the mourning grieving process could go 30 days. The seven, first seven days would be the most intense of it. And they would even go so far as to hire professional mourners. 
at times because the more wailing and crying and lamenting that would go on, I mean, the more the, the deceased was being honored. And bystanders, onlookers, neighbors will say, man, that guy was really loved. And, you know, and that was kind of the idea, right? And so that, that sounds very strange to us, but no doubt that was kind of the scene here. And so Jesus comes. He arrives. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, probably took the messenger about a day to get to Jesus. And then the messenger gives Jesus the message that Lazarus was dead. And then it took, uh, Jesus waited two more days, and then he traveled. And so it was a four-day process. And I think that there's some significance to this. There's some significance to the four-day mark. Now, they didn't embalm people uh, there at this time. And so what they would do is they would wrap the body in cloth, and then they would put spices in between the layers. It would be, they would be loosely wrapped. Because of the temperature, they would begin to, uh, the effects of death would set in almost immediately. So they would bury them the same day, day one, wrapped, put in a tomb. And then the decomposition begins almost right away. And so there was, uh, there was some kind of a, a rabbinic superstition that, that we have found uh, and seen in some of the writings of the rabbis that they believed that the spirit of the deceased would hover right over the body for like three days until it finally recognized that the body was so far gone there was no hope of it returning back to its body. That sounds crazy to us, but um, that was the superstition. And I had also read that sometimes when they would do the mourning, they would do it right outside the tomb for a little while just in case somehow the body was resuscitated. And so there was no hope whatsoever at this point. No one could say that Lazarus was just resuscitated, that all his spirit was just there in the tomb and it came back into him. No, he's dead. He's deader than dead. He's decomposing. Uh, There's no room for anyone to say anything other than that. And then Jesus shows up on the scene to bring him back to life. Does that make sense? You guys still with me? Just kind of laying the setting here, what this would have been like, looked like. Well, verse 21, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let me read that again. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, then listen to this, verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, this on one level is certainly a declaration of faith. You know, when she says, you know, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's acknowledging something pretty unique and spectacular about Jesus, that Jesus clearly has the ability to save, he has the ability to heal, and that had he been there... Lazarus would have escaped death. And so that, that in and of itself is a significant statement. However, you can also hear in that same exact statement, you know, just a real tone of accusation. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. You weren't here, my brother died. And so um, that's, that's pretty serious, you know. That's, that's really an accusatory statement. It's almost as if she's blaming Jesus for the death of her brother. And so in this, you hear a response of disillusionment, disappointment, and even frustration. Even frustration. And so that, that's the opposite of faith. And you know, what, what we see here, it's, it's a limitation of Christ's power. You weren't here. Now, we already know Jesus had, brought, uh, had healed people from great distances. And so distances. And so he's the... He's the Son of God. He could, do, he could have done that. He didn't have to be there. And so she's limiting Jesus' power based on proximity, right? How often do we do that? How often do we limit Jesus' power as the Son of God? I would venture to say we do it all the time, you know, especially when it comes to maybe even salvation, you know. Maybe he could save you, but he could never save someone like me. I've gone too far. I've done too many bad things. And we limit the power of the cross even. And so we limit his love. He could never love somebody like me. 
We limit his resources. Uh, we limit him on so many ways through doubt, through disbelief. Such was the case here. It's a perceived lack of care and urgency due to his late arrival. Obviously, you don't care or you would have been here sooner, right? How often do we question the love and the care and the concern of God? I mean, I, we, we just do. You know, when, when things don't go the way that we would have liked them to, gone, to go, we, uh, we, we question that. We question His care. And I've had to, at times, encourage myself with the cross in the midst of that. I know He cares. My feelings might tell me otherwise. The circumstances going on around me might tell me otherwise. But what I know is that Jesus died for me. He paid such an awesome price for me. I know He cares. How could I ever think that He does not care? How could I ever think for a moment that God the Father does not care when He paid such an awesome price for me and for you? Right? This is a total disregard of the sovereign hand of the Father. Do you think that this escaped the Father that Lazarus passed? From this life to the next, somehow God was busy and He didn't know. He overlooked. He didn't catch that. And so I think on some level, you know, she's disregarding the fact that life begins and ends with God. Amen? Life deci uh, God decides when life begins. God decides when life ends. It's His prerogative. It's His business. And yet she was blaming Jesus for this. And it's rather demanding, wouldn't you say? And I'm not hating on, on Martha here. Please don't misunderstand me. But I just want us to see the different ways in which we see even doubt manifest itself and just how often we do the same things. We do the same things. It's rather demanding. Jesus doesn't owe us anything. Do you know that? Jesus didn't even owe us salvation and the fact that we are saved, if Jesus never did any other kind thing towards us for the rest of our lives, He would be worthy of all of our praise. Yet He does so much more than that. Every day, all day, He is working providentially, lovingly in our lives, guiding, protecting, caring, providing. And sometimes, I think because of that, we begin to expect, we begin to demand and then when things don't go the way that we would have hoped or thought they should go, we begin to accuse. We begin to accuse. And so we got to watch that, folks. we got to watch that. That's an ever-present danger and threat to the Christian, allowing faith to lapse like that and to begin to behave and think and say things like that. It can be very subtle, but it can happen. Now, despite all of that, you know, she's human. We're all human. We're, that's going to happen. It has happened before. It's going to happen again. God's not going to be mad at us. God knows. Remember, I talked about that. We are dust, creatures from the dust. God breathed life into dust, and there came Adam. And we're told that he remembers that we are dust. Our frame is dust. And as I have said before, you can't expect much from a pile of dust. And so God doesn't get mad. He doesn't get angry or disappointed. He's committed. He loves us. He's committed to strengthening our faith in the midst of all of that. And so Martha says, in light of that, like despite having said that, that statement that if you had have been here, my brother would have been alive, she then immediately says, however, even now, whatever you ask of God, He will do for you. That's amazing. He will give that to you. Now, that's a statement of faith, right? That's a statement of faith. But to what extent? What is she saying here? Because it kind of sounds like she's saying, you weren't here, my brother died, but even now you could raise him from the dead. You could, whatever God, you know, whatever you ask, he'll give it to you. That's what it kind of sounds like she's saying, right? However, I don't think that's what she's saying. I think that there are a couple of other verses here in our text that would suggest otherwise. Um, she, Jesus flat out tells her her brother is going to rise again. And she says, yeah, yeah, I know. He's going to rise in the resurrection. So she's not thinking like right now. 
And then later, when Jesus goes to the tomb and says, remove the stone, what is her response? What does she say? Say it loud and proud. Surely he stinks by now. You got King James Version, he stinketh. And so, yeah, she, she didn't see, it didn't appear to me to be like her expectation that Jesus was literally going to raise her brother right there on the spot. And, uh, you know, Chuck Swindoll, he says the same thing. And, and he says that this is a confession of her faith in Christ, despite her disappointment. His delay and his apparent decision not to act did not diminish her confidence in him. I love that. This statement, this statement is a declaration of faith. Her confidence in Jesus had not been diminished. And I would submit to you folks, and I want you to grab a hold of this. Maybe this is like the most important part of this whole thing right here when it comes to our faith, what we are observing right here. I believe that this is, this is the very epitome of mature faith. This is the height of mature faith. This is the kind of faith that God is trying to bring us to, this place. And that is, even despite what has happened and just how soul-crushing it was to her and how it was the exact opposite of what she had hoped would happen, she could still say that she was confident in Jesus. That she was confident in Jesus. Her confidence in His goodness and in His ability had not been diminished. Amen? Now that sounds real good, but that is so hard to do. So hard to do. Only by the grace of God and the Spirit of God can we have faith like that. But that's His goal for us, that we would walk in that kind of faith. This is the kind of faith that Paul displayed. Now, Paul, he was in jail uh, right before he was executed. The last letter that we have that he wrote, it was 2 Timothy. And he was writing to Timothy, his protege, who was back in Ephesus. And Timothy was in a place where there was a lot of hostility. And he was a, he was a um, timid guy. And Paul would have to encourage him. To stay in the game, get in the game, suffer well for Jesus, don't back off, don't slow down. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now Paul was this mighty apostle called by God to do incredible works, to preach the gospel, to see countless come to faith in Christ, so many churches planted. Yet his ministry was so often fraught with suffering, with persecution, with beatings, uh, being starved, shipwrecked. Freezing cold, loneliness, isolation. He suffered well. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of God. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You know, he, he's not regretting what, what he has done, his decision to follow and to serve. He's not saying, you know what, I thought God was in this, but it's gone so badly for me. Maybe God wasn't in this. No, he has complete and total confidence. The idea of ashamed, sometimes this word, the idea, we think of it as embarrassed, but it's kind of like being let down, as if like you trusted somebody and you got duped. You got let down, right? Paul was not let down. He was not ashamed of Christ or the testimony or the gospel or the life that he lived in his service to the Lord, Right? He said, because I know in whom I have believed. There it is. I know who I have believed and trusted and committed my life to. And I am convinced that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that very day. See, guys, that's real faith. That is real faith. Amen. Job, of all people, could say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I mean, think about that. Though he slay me, 
It's like Job saying that he's kill, God's killing me. He is, my life is being torn apart right now, yet I will trust him. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. And that's, that's serious, deep, mature faith. That is the ultimate faith. You know, I met a gentleman recently by God's uh, providence. Uh, we met, and he began to tell me about his, his son, who was uh, he's homeless and uh, you know, addicted to drugs, and it just you know, crushed him, killed him. He, he just was so concerned about his son and just so afraid that he was going to get that phone call one day about his son, that his son was gone, you know, and he said, there's really only three things that I can count on, three things that I cling to, and he says, it's this, God does all things according to the counsel of his will, that he does all things for my good and all things for his glory, and he said that, and that hurts, you know, he said, said, I've been preaching about this stuff for years, and I have to remind myself of these things now when it pertains to me. And he says, so it's easy for me to say God does all things to the counsel of his will, but it hurts. God does all things for my good, but it hurts. God does all things for his own glory, but it hurts. You know what? But it's good. It's right. God is faithful. He knows what we do not know, and he's doing an amazing work that we cannot always see in this life. And that is the kind of faith that will see us through in this life, because this life is hard. Can I get a witness? This life is hard. We struggle. We fail. Things, don't, things typically don't go the way that we would want them to go. Sometimes real tragedy strikes. And I would say most of us in here have already experienced that on some level in our lives, if not on multiple levels. And this is the kind of faith that's going to see you through that. This is faith when it really counts. That's faith that really pleases God. You know, is it the kind of faith where it's like, oh, just praise the Lord, everything's okay. You ask someone how they're doing, oh, God's so good, praise Him. You know, but like, that wasn't, that wasn't uh, Martha. She was like, Jesus, where were you? You weren't here. You know, that hurts. I've been let down. But even now, even now I know. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, He'll give you. And so that's how we have to live, folks. That's how we have to, to be in this life. And God's committed to bringing us to that place. He's committed. And as I say, that sounds really good, but that is not easy. That is a very hard thing to do. And we fall short oftentimes in that. You know, it just doesn't take much to shake our faith. Realistically, it just doesn't. It doesn't take these kinds of situations to shake us. It takes far less. And I just think about one, one story in my own life, moving out here from Tennessee. I had a really good thing going for me there. I really didn't know what was going to happen moving here. I just knew that God wanted me and my wife to move here. My wife is from here. We, uh, we obviously knew of this church. Uh, it was my wife's church. And uh, we felt the Lord was calling us back here. And people back in Tennessee were just like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? You have something so good going for you here. You're going out there. You don't really have much, any open doors, really. And uh, there's so much uncertainty. And so, you know, that was, it was a step of faith. We came out here. I didn't have a job. We were going to stay with our in-laws uh, for as short of a length of time as possible. And... Uh, Jess was pregnant with our first child, and, uh, you know, it was scary at times. And we had two cars, and we came out here literally, I think we brought our coffee pot, our toaster, our TV, and my books, and our clothes. That was it. That's what we came with. And uh, we, we sold Jess's car and decided to drive out in my car. I thought that, that you know, I was still making payments on, on it. It was a fairly new car. And it broke down in New Mexico. It broke down in New Mexico. And I was just like, God, what in the world? You know, this is, we're coming out here, take, you know, steps of faith and just believing that you called us to this. And I'm in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I don't know if you ever heard of that. There's all kinds of westerns that are filmed there. And I'm like, I'm struggling. Now I'm doubting. I'm like, maybe God wasn't in this, right? Maybe this is like a, a bad sign, an omen or something. I don't know. 
And, uh, you know, my faith was, was uh, shaken in that moment. And so it was fine. You know, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, I hitchhiked here. It took me about three more weeks to get here. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, it, it all worked out. It was fine. And God just blessed in so many ways I could not have ever even begun to imagine. And so, but it doesn't take much, you know. It doesn't take much for us to start doubting that God even loves us. You know, hardships start to befall us, and we somehow think God doesn't love, God doesn't care. You know, we begin to doubt that maybe we're even saved. We start struggling in our faith. We're not doing as well as we would have liked to have done. We're sinning or who knows what, and we start to question if we're even saved. Or we might even go so far. I've had prolonged seasons of difficulty as a Christian where I started coming to the point where I didn't even know if God existed. Maybe somebody can relate with that. And so those kinds of things can happen. Those kinds of things do happen. It doesn't take much to do that to us. And then when really difficult things come into our lives, man, it can just catapult us into a place of uh, complete and total despair, right? But despite Martha's disappointment, she maintained that even now God would hear. That even now God would hear Jesus. So upon hearing this declaration of faith, Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise again. Man, that should have been just you know, music to her ears. That should have been glorious. And she says, yes, Lord, I know he'll rise again in the, in, on the last day. Uh, to me, what I kind of hear in that is just a disappointed concession. Like, you're, I, I get it, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's going to rise again. Kind of like if we're going through something that's really devastating and someone says, Romans 8, 28... And we're like, yeah, yeah, I know. I saw that on my coffee cup just this morning. And so, you know, we do that. We do that. It looks like she did that when she heard these precious words from Jesus. And then he says this, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So this is the fifth of the seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And again, he does this. He makes this most marvelous statement against the backdrop of Lazarus' death and burial. See, death is the ultimate and inescapable enemy. Death is the ultimate and inescapable enemy. Um, one commentator says this, Death is an inescapable fact of life. Death is ruthless. It frequently comes without warning and strikes without mercy. Death is unrelenting. It cannot be cheated, bribed, outwitted, overcome, or eluded. Death is indiscriminate. It takes young and old, poor and rich, sick and healthy, wicked and benevolent. And death is universal. All must ultimately succumb to its darkness. Death is a harsh reality of life, but it wasn't always so, and it need not be the end. i just read that to you in case you had any joy at all. I just want to suck that right out of you, you know, <laughs> just crush that, stomp on it a couple times. But that's the reality that we are all faced with. Death is coming for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. And you know the thing about Lazarus is, even though we know that he's going to be raised from the grave, there's still a problem. He's going to die again. He's going to die again, and he's going to die for good, right? And then what? Then what? And so, as much as it's a huge blessing for Jesus to do this incredible miracle and bring him back, as much as his sisters will love and will love and celebrate and rejoice in that. He's going to die one day. It's going to happen. Then what? And that's what really matters. So the words that Jesus is speaking are actually so much more important than she even realizes. You know, Jesus is the final answer to this ultimate problem. He is the solution. He is the life. In the face of death, He is life. Amen.
Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Amen to that. Amen and amen. 1 Corinthians 15 says, verse 20, But now Christ has risen from the dead, and He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Death came through Adam. Because of Adam's rebelliousness, his sin against God, transgressing God's commandment, death entered into the world and has spread through all of mankind. And we all have this mortal enemy that we must face. Right? But through Christ came life. Through His righteous life, through His death on the cross, through His substitutionary act of grace and mercy on our behalf, taking our place and giving us life, we shall be raised into the newness of life. We will not be raised to judgment. We will be raised to everlasting life and glory with God the Father. And that's great news. That is the hope and the motivation of the Christian. And so with that, why don't you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be wrapping up here in just a few minutes. And I want us to look at this together. Because, you know, we hear about this resurrection stuff, and I imagine that the older that we get, the more precious that becomes. Right? I don't think about it an awful lot. I'm young. You know, I'm uh, indestructible. Right? <laughs> Ten feet tall, bulletproof. I'm going to live forever. I don't have to worry about that stuff. That's how we tend to be, right? But the older people get, they sense their frailty and uh, the shortness of life, and this becomes so much more precious. And then in other places of the world, this is the only hope that they have. Life here will always be misery and pain, and the expectancy of life in times past and other places and still around the world is so short that this is urgent. The truth of Jesus Christ is urgent because you really do not know how much longer you will live or how much longer you have. We don't know. None of us in here know. But we expect and tend to believe that we're going to you know, live on for a while uh, because of the place that we live, the time in which we live. But in a lot of other places, they don't have that. So this is so much more relevant and important, but it should be to us too. And so anyways, I want us to try to look at it with that kind of urgency. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, that's the, our body that we are currently in, if it's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. So we are in an earthly tent. That's the language Paul uses. And the tent is being worn out. It's getting, it's getting torn up. Holes in the tent. It's leaking. You know, it's, it's just wasting away. But there's going to be a heavenly body that the Lord has for us that we eagerly await, that we groan for, that we look to. And so that is the hope. And the more that we suffer in this life, the more that these bodies break down, the more we look forward to that day when we will have that glorious heavenly body. And so that is a very real hope. It's very relevant in this life to many of us here even now. That is the hope of heaven, the hope of glory, the hope of eternity, the hope of a heavenly habitation that is ours and is so much better than anything that we could ever have in this life. And then verse 5 there in the same text, it says, Now he who has prepared us for this thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. So we know that as long as we are here, the Lord is with us, but 
we're not present with the Lord like we will be when we pass from this life to the next. And in fact, I love this. This is a classic verse to know that the moment that we pass from this life, we will be in His presence. Amen? And so to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is all God's doing. God has prepared this for us, and He's given us His Holy Spirit as a guarantee. He's saying, I'm going to make good on this promise. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit even here and now, right? And so there's our hope, there's our confidence. But then there's some application that immediately follows this. We're not to just sit around and do nothing idly until that day comes. Verse 9, he says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are all well known to God, and I trust we are all well known in your consciences. Okay, so what I wanted to focus on there in those closing verses is this reality that, folks, we are going to be raised again. Now, if, and this is a, very much a matter of faith, this is, we're going back to faith. We will be raised again. Now, for the person who hasn't trusted Jesus Christ, who hasn't called upon God for mercy, you're going to be judged, and you will have to give an account for all the ways in which you have sinned against the goodness and the holiness of a righteous God and judge. And he says here, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to know God, right? To know Christ, to be found in Him, to have your sins forgiven there at the cross, and to know Him as a loving Heavenly Father, no longer as a judge, no longer fear, no longer terror, but love. Amen? Now, for the Christian, however, our sins have already been paid for. They've already been judged on the cross of Jesus Christ. But there is still a judgment that awaits. And this is not a judgment against our sin, but a judgment of what did we do in this life for Christ? We've been given such a great privilege and an opportunity. We've been forgiven. We have been saved. We have been given spiritual gifts. We've been given all kinds of resources to steward for God here on this earth until the day comes when we have to stand before Him and we're going to be judged for what we did with those here in this life. See, that's, that's all bound up in the promise of resurrection. That is all bound up in the hope of the resurrection for the believer. Jesus is the resurrection and life. Amen? If you don't know Him, you don't know life, and you face a very certain judgment on that dreadful and awful day. But if you do know Him, you have passed from death to life. You will stand before Him in glory on that day, and you'll be rewarded. You'll be rewarded. It's a judgment of reward. It's not a judgment of, you didn't serve me enough. How dare you? You didn't use the things that I gave you. You blew it. It's a judgment of reward. We'll be rewarded. Can you believe it? What kind of grace is this? That we would be saved. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to achieve it or accomplish it. All glory to God. And then He gives us gifts and resources to serve Him with. And then He rewards us for it in the very end. Is that amazing grace or what? See, that's the hope of the resurrection. That is the hope that is in Christ Jesus when He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Death is an inescapable enemy but even death will be swallowed up one day. The final enemy will be destroyed. First Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? Death shall be no more. That's the hope of the believer. That's the hope of the believer. We're going to go ahead and close. There's more that I could say here, but we'll stop here. And I will just say this regarding Martha. Let's just read the rest of the text. Verse 28. And when she said these things, she went her way secretly and called Mary, uh, Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now listen to this. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar? I would say they were rehearsing that to each other, waiting on Jesus to get there. They're saying to each other, I can't believe it. The Lord didn't come. He didn't make it. Where was he? Had he been here, our brother would still be living. And then, of course, that's the first thing they say to Jesus when he does arrive. I mean, you can just see it so clearly there. That's what's happening. But you know what she does? I love she just falls at his feet. She just falls at Jesus' feet. And this is the posture of faith. Falling down at his feet. And there's so much that, it, that is communicated in that without words. Because that's a phrase, you may not know this, that is frequently found throughout the Gospels. And in other texts, you'll see things like where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? Attentiveness. She is locked in on what Jesus is saying. She believes that he is who he is. He's special and he is to be listened to. Remember the demoniac who had the legion of demons that were cast out of him? When they came, the townspeople found him. He was clothed in his right mind and sitting at Jesus' feet. Safety, comfort, love. Jairus, remember he came and cried out for Jesus to save his daughter. He fell at Jesus' feet. That is humble desperation. And of course the sinful woman who came in and anointed Jesus' feet and washed his, his feet with her hair. That was costly devotion, gratitude. She was at his feet. And I think all of that's kind of bound up in what we see here with, with Mary. She doesn't say much. She makes that same declaration that, that Martha did, but she falls at his feet as if to say that uh, really the same thing. Lord, I love you. I trust you. I bow before you, and I know even still you're good. I can do no other but fall at your feet in desperation and faith. And may we do the same. May we be people that are full of faith. Full of faith. May God grant us that faith. When you're going through the most crushing, difficult circumstances, or even just mildly annoying circumstances, remember that that's faith. It's faith to say that I know that this is an expression of God's love for me. He's allowed this into my life. Perhaps He's even invited it into my life. I know He's good. He's greatly to be praised. He's to be trusted, and He's working through this. So God, have your way. Have your way in me. Amen? He's, he's worthy to be trusted, and that's faith. Sometimes it's messy, but it's glorious. Amen? We love you, Lord. You are great and greatly to be praised. We honor you, and we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you that you are pleased by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please you, but you are pleased by faith. So I pray that you would grant us faith, strengthen our faith. I pray that when the opportunity arises for us to express faith in you, that we wouldn't miss the opportunity, that we wouldn't fail the test. And I pray for all the hurt, all the struggle, all the uncertainty, all the doubt, all the frustration that may be present in this room even here and now, crushing grief and loss, everything, Lord, that you would grant us the, the ability to say that our Redeemer lives, and that though He slay me, yet I will trust Him, and that even now, you're good, you're faithful, you're working all things according to the counsel of your perfect will for our good and for your glory. And we praise you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.